First Corinthians chapter 15, that great resurrection chapter written by the Apostle Paul. I want us to consider this, uh, this afternoon verses 20 to 22 uh, as our primary text. But just to set that in context, let me begin at the beginning of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the authoritative and the inerrant word of God, so let us give it careful attention. For I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, for I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached to you and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are also found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep... In Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And now the text we'll consider this morning. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You may be seated. Again, let us go to the Lord and ask his help in understanding this word. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the word preached of Christ's death and of his resurrection. We thank you for the eyewitnesses that told the glory of this, for the angels that declared it to the women. Lord, for those others who saw him and his appearances after his death, and even Paul who saw him on the road to Damascus. Lord, we thank you most of all for the very truth of Christ's resurrection from the dead, that he has conquered the grave, that that enemy death has itself been put to death in his resurrection. God, we pray this afternoon as we consider the words of the apostle that you would even bring them home to each of our hearts with real conviction, with faith, with confidence, with genuine hope and trust in the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, that we might see in that the accomplishment of our own salvation, the reversal of condemnation, even the open acquittal of Christ Jesus himself justified, and we justified in him, crucified and raised. Teach us, instruct us by your Spirit. Give us not the wisdom of men, but give us the wisdom taught from above, taught by the Spirit who even searches the deep things of God. May he now even illumine our hearts to receive these things 
in true and sturdy faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's often said that nothing is guaranteed in life but death and taxes. Men have devised ways to cheat the taxman, as it were, but to cheat the reaper, the one who comes and cuts us down at the appointed time, has not yet been devised. And indeed, will not. For the Christian, the stubborn reality of death is perhaps perplexing, Modern scientists wonder, somewhat laughably, why do we die? We've made such achievements in, in various sciences and in chemistry and biology. Death seems like something we should solve soon. And yet, continually people die and eventually death rates outrun birth rates. For the Christian, this might be particularly perplexing inasmuch as Christians have trusted Christ Jesus so that they may overcome the grave, that we believe a resurrected Savior, and that we believe that the salvation He's achieved for us is that of eternal life, that we should believe and live forever. And if we drink of this drink, we will never thirst again, but it will become in us a spring of water up into eternal life. And yet, for all of this, Christians die. We attend the funerals of those who have died in the Lord. He first mentions those who have fallen asleep uh, a a little earlier uh, in verse 6 of this passage. Um, Then again, he mentions those who have fallen asleep in Christ in verse 18. So the reality of Christians dying is one that Paul faces and that each of us has to face. And we have to, in one respect, square that with our hope in the gospel. How can we go and proclaim eternal life on Friday, and then on Saturday attend the funeral of a Christian, all the while saying with a straight face and a believing heart, this one died in possession of eternal life. It seems like those things couldn't go together. Some, in answer to this perplexing challenge, tried to simply spiritualize the meaning of resurrection so that resurrection doesn't necessarily mean your body being raised up from the grave, but resurrection might just be a sort of metaphor for a kind of renewal of your spirit or a kind of rejuvenation of the inner man and the actual resurrection of the outer man is just a metaphor or a picture. The dead don't rise. Does the resurrection message of Jesus have meaning? Yes, as a metaphor, inasmuch as Jesus inspires all of us to maybe live better lives or hope for better things in the inner man, that's what resurrection is, full stop. The problem with this, among other things, is that it renders a fundamental aspect of our humanity hopelessly lost. And by that I mean the outer man. I think we need to be careful as Christians not to have a low view of the body. Platonic philosophy has a low view of the body. It often describes the body as the prison house of the soul. And sometimes we might even confuse the apostle's own longing to be free from his body as if his ambition was disembodiment. But of course his ambition is not disembodiment. His ambition is actually to be free from the body of death so that he might be clothed with a better body. That is to say, not to be disembodied, but to be better bodied. The spiritualization of resurrection that doesn't treat it as an, as an external, somatic, bodily, historical reality is content to leave a fundamental aspect of our human identity to perish, which is to say, our bodies. These bodies aren't just vehicles that our souls happen to be cruising around in. But they are, in fact, a fundamental piece of our identity. 
If you kick my shins, I might, I won't say, why did you kick the body I'm driving? I will say, why did you kick me? Because at some deep level, I recognize that my body is inextricable from my human identity. Also, my body with my soul participates in the curse that was wrought by Adam upon himself and all his posterity. We'll consider that in a moment. Moreover, moreover, there's a misunderstanding if we simply spiritualize the resurrection in that it fails to appreciate the intimate connection between Christ and his people. Christ does not only get benefits for us, but Christ gets benefits for us by first embodying those benefits himself. Christ isn't just the one who gives you life. Christ is the very embodiment of the life he gives so that when he gives you life, he really gives you life by giving himself. Paul says in Galatians 2 that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The resurrected Christ is the very life by which you live. But if Christ is not raised, then how do you live? It mistakes that bond between Christ and his own. In fact, the bond is more profound than that. Christ's death, we're told in Romans 6, is a death to sin. The death he died, he died to sin, we're told. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. And then Paul says, in response to that, that you should reckon yourselves in Christ, dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon yourselves alive to God in Christ Jesus. Christ's death is a death to the power of sin. Not his own personal sin, but the sin that he bore in his body. If you're going to die to sin, then get hold of Jesus, because Jesus died to sin. And if you have Jesus, Jesus' death to sin becomes your death to sin. And if you're going to live unto God in newness of life, then get hold of Jesus, because he lives unto God in newness of life. The resurrection and the death of Christ Jesus fundamentally embody dying to sin and living to God in newness of life. They embody our salvation so that what we should say is that we have died with Christ and that we live, this is key, with Christ, in Christ, through Christ. In verses 13 to 19, we just read those together, the apostle works backward from the denial that there's any resurrection. Resurrection isn't a real thing. That would be the denial, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection, some say that there's, among you say there's no resurrection from the dead. But if that's generally true, then it's also specifically true. That is to say, if there's no resurrection from the dead generally, then there's no resurrection of Jesus either, since he would fall underneath that category, resurrection from the dead. How is it that some say there's no such thing as resurrection from the from the dead? Paul then begins to work out in kind of a rapid-fire um, way the implications of that denial and how it would completely unravel the Christian proclamation of the gospel and the hope of the Christian, and maybe most importantly, would actually render a different judgment on those who have fallen asleep. If you fell asleep in Christ who died to sin, and Christ didn't rise again to newness of God, in newness of life to God, then those who have died in Christ have perished. Because, roll, roll it back a little bit, because... Christ perished. A non-resurrected Christ who simply dies as a martyr not to rise again does not offer the promise of life to the people who trust him. And in fact, in so, and this is why the apostle says this, he says, uh, you're of all men most to be pitied. Verse 17, you are still in your sins. If the power of sin is death and Christ remains under it, then what hope do you have for being delivered from it? If you die, then you just go down under the power of sin with Christ. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And we hoped in this life as if there were a life to come. But if there is no resurrection, we're fools. In fact, if there's no resurrection, um, why are we here? What's the point of this? 
that we're of all men most to be pitied. Why? Because we're living like there's a resurrection. We talked about this this morning. We're living as if our deeds will follow after us. We're living as if now counts for eternity. But if it's just a dirt nap and that's all that's coming, (laughs) to put it rather crassly, um, live and eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die and that's the end. The resurrection says no to that. So the question with regard to our salvation is, what is its power? It's not simply dying with Christ. It's rising with Christ. Verse 20 begins emphatically, but Christ has been raised from the dead. What I want to get at here is what Paul, what the significance of this resurrection is for us. I've titled my sermon, A New Beginning, A New Beginning. And I want to get just through three observations at what the apostle is, is saying in these few verses. First, I want us to consider the primacy of Christ's resurrection, the primacy of it. Secondly, I want to consider that a new and better humanity begins in the resurrection of Christ. And then thirdly, that a bright future is secured. So first, verse 20, the primacy of Christ's resurrection resurrection. Um, more glorious words perhaps have never been spoken, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. We just went through a pretty, um, a pretty grim thought experiment. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And let's think about what that means for our gospel. We say that God raised him, but he wasn't raised, so we lied about what God did. That's a problem. Um, we gave you hope that you shouldn't have. We told you that the sentence of condemnation of sin and death, in fact, still remains, and if you died hoping that it would be removed, you actually just went to your reward, which is condemnation. But Christ has been raised, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul's emphatic that those who have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have not perished. Contrary to outward appearances, the soul has left the body and is with the Lord and is awaiting resurrection. I always love walking through a graveyard and seeing those tombstones that have something like, um, you know, lo- you know, lying in wait for the resurrection or hope- hoping for my Lord's return or you know, something like this that expresses that this is this is an interlude. This is an interlude that the body will indeed be raised and reconstituted, destined not ultimately for disintegration and just to be a memory, but destined ultimately for resurrection and for reconstitution in his presence. The apostle uses an interesting word uh, to describe Christ's resurrection with regard to us. He says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So of those who have di- of those who have uh, died, and by those fallen asleep, you know, in the context that he's talking about those who have fallen asleep in Christ. For those who have fallen asleep in Christ, Christ's resurrection is the first fruits from the dead, the first fruits of resurrection from among those. So very rich agrarian imagery, and in this, uh, it's meant to tell us that Jesus's resurrection is not merely an isolated, detached historical event, sort of a trick or a miracle that God did just to convince you that he has power. But it's more than that, that it's actually integrally and even organically connected to your own hope. It's not just meant to inspire you. It's more than just sort of inspiration. Uh, it's embodiment of what is yours and of what you hope for. Indeed, the first fruits imagery serves to highlight an intimate bond between the experience of Jesus on Easter Sunday and the personal experience that every Christian ought to expect in union with him. 
There are three, now this is just some points. I know I have three points to my sermon, but I also have three points to consider here. With, don't worry, it won't get to, there, we won't have sub-subcategories, just subcategories uh, of consideration. There's three points uh, to bring out about what it means to say that he is first fruits. Perhaps the, perhaps the easiest and most obvious thing in calling Christ first fruits is just to recognize that he's somehow first in a tempor- temporal order. That in an order of an event, let's just call an event resurrection, in the order of this great resurrection event, resurrection unto eternal life, the first fruits of it have already begun to be harvested. And the very first fruit has been picked, so to speak. The first fruits are first. I know. I, I did study that actually, but you already knew, you already knew that. You read your Bible and it says they are first. So what are we to make of this? What especially should, should stand out in this primacy of being first fruits is that this is a resurrection unlike any other, and it's the first of its kind. Now, I think the temptation is to wonder how could Christ be first fruits given that Christ is not, Christ's resurrection is not the first resurrection ever recorded. Christ himself raised the widow of Nain's son, which is actually not far from where uh, Elisha raised the son of the Sh- of the uh, Shunammite woman. Uh, Nain is probably about two miles away at the base of Mount Tabor, about two miles away from where Elijah had raised the Shunammite woman's son. And if you remember this in the story, when Jesus raised the widow of Nain's son, um, the people's response was, a great prophet has arisen among us. But of course, because if you if you live in Nain, What's the, what's the big Old Testament Bible event that happened right in your own backyard? Uh, the prophet raised the, the Shunammite woman's son. And now a woman's son has been raised and they say a great prophet has arisen among us. I mean, there's a sort of, boy, this is like Elijah and Elisha, both of whom raised someone from the dead. Christ also raised Jairus' daughter um, as well. If you recall that, Christ also raised Lazarus from the dead only days before his own resurrection. Um, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And so there are resurrections, uh, I, I don't want to say a plenty, uh, but let's just say enough to establish this has happened. Then how can Paul say that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep? Wouldn't he be like the seventh fruit of those who are asleep if you were just counting resurrections? I think the answer to this question is this, that Christ is first in this particular manner of resurrection, that this resurrection, unlike those, is not a resurrection back into this order of things under the curse. I mean, here's the thing about Lazarus. Um, he had two funerals. The other one that came later that isn't recorded for us, and the first one uh, that is the, of which we are told, we should probably assume the same of Jairus' daughter that she raised up, perhaps became a godly a godly woman in her own time and generation. But there's no reason to think that she did not also succumb again uh, to death. The widow of Nain's son, maybe he was in his 20s and he lived to be 80. Maybe he had four score. But this is the thing about all those that were raised up before Christ Jesus. They were not raised up to eternal life. They were restored for a time back to this order of things and again succumbed to death. Christ is the first of his kind, of his kind, the kind of life that is life forever. He embodies in himself, not just back from the grave, he embodies a manner of life never to die again. He's raised 
incorruptible and immortal. That can't be said for any who had been raised prior to Christ Jesus. Christ is raised to live forever in heaven. Those who are raised before him are just simply, in God's purposes, brought back to serve a purpose on this earth for a little while longer. So the first thing we should understand is this. Christ is raised eternal into what we, forgive me a little theology language, into an eschatological manner of being. He is raised in such a way that his body is outfitted for eternal habitation in heaven. He's the first of that. This is resurrection unto eternal life. Second, the second reason that this of the primacy of first fruits, the imagery is this, that Jesus' resurrection is representative of the same character and quality of the resurrection in which we hope to obtain. The first fruits, if I can put it like this, is a harbinger, an, an indicator of the quality of the harvest that is going to come after it. Um. My father is a cherry farmer uh, in Northern California, and he has many cherry trees, and they don't all uh, become ripe at the same time. And in fact, what makes picking cherries even more difficult is all the fruit on a single tree doesn't become ripe at the same time. Uh, the fruit in the top of the tree that gets the most sun on the top outer part of the tree that gets the most sunshine is the first to ripen, and then the harvest of fruit that is growing on the inner part of the tree or down in the shade will ripen later. And uh, living most of my adult life on the East Coast, every April sometime, my dad walks through his orchard and is in hunt of one thing, quite literally, the first fruit. Not just the, not the first, the first fruit that he can eat, the first fruit that's ready for harvest, the fruit, first fruit that's ready to be picked. And this is what normally happens as I'm bracing for a the last nor'easter storm in the northeast, uh, I get a picture from the farm in California of the first bright, ripe cherry. My response is, how long did it last? I took the picture and the cherry's gone. You know, that's it. Um, the rest isn't ready, but the, there's a sense in which if that fruit is, and there are many things you look for in the quality of it, color, size, firmness, sugar content, clean-looking skin. I mean, you just people buy with their eyes when it comes to fruit. I mean, if it just if it looks bad, doesn't mean it is bad. Sometimes bad-looking fruit is some of the best-tasting fruit, but that's not how people. So, does it look good? Does it taste good? Does it have size? Does it have crunch? Does it have sugar levels? And if it has all of that, then there's something about it's, there's something about this first fruits that actually indicates it makes you hopeful that more of the same is to come. Now, if it's bruised and it's wind damaged and it's split because the rain or the hail have gotten on it, if if it doesn't have there's a sense in which if it has too much water, this is a delicacy of cherries. If it has too much water, then actually it's hard to get the sugar content. You also you almost need a little bit of dry days to kind of get the sugar level up. That's why when you let fruit sit out on your counter. It's actually sweeter as the kind of the as it as the water goes out of it, um, and if it's if it's soggy and split and bruised, it makes you think that this could be a pretty rough harvest. <laughs> pretty rough harvest. The first fruits are an indicator of what's to come. They're a harbinger of the quality of the kind of harvest that is about to be gathered in. In a similar manner, Christ's resurrection from the dead and the manner of his resurrection is an indicator to you as to what kind of life you can hope for to come. How do you know? I mean, this is a, how do, like, resurrection sounds great, but if it's a Lazarus thing, you know, where I'm, I'm out of the grave and then whatever, a few decades later, I'm back in the grave. That, I'm, 
Maybe that's hopeful to you, but that's not why you're a Christian. That's not why you're a, you're a Christian because you are seeking and believing that you have received eternal life in the gospel. The manner of Jesus' resurrection is unto that eternal state, which indicates that as the first, look at what it says, he's the first fruits, this is key, of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, it's not like the resurrection of Jesus um, is unconnected. He's the first fruits of a harvest, which is going to be a harvest in kind. If it's good fruit, you can hope for good fruit to follow. This is good fruit. This is good. The resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead is the best fruit. This is the conquering of the very grave itself, not merely of the inner man, but of the outer man, body and soul, completely raised up into newness of life. The third thing, just that we would on the primacy of, of his resurrection, uh, is that the, as first fruits, his resurrection is a promise and a pledge of more to come. This is somewhat connected, but I want to I want to make just another a formally distinct point here um, that the first fruit itself is not actually a distinct event from the harvest that follows it. It's really just the first episode in a single eschatological event. So the question, you're hoping in the resurrection to come. You're hoping in the resurrection from the dead. You're hoping in an event, let's just call this event harvest, uh, the gathering up from graves of those who have died. You're hoping in that event. What hope do you have that such an event will happen? This, it has already begun. It is already, the future, if I can put it like this way, is here. When my dad sends me the first picture of the first fruit, he doesn't say, technically speaking, harvest isn't about to begin. When he picks that first fruit, it's on. I mean, it's, he's calling contractors and making sure we've got enough trailers and tractors and everything is ready to go when the big harvest comes in, but it's not a different harvest. The first fruit is itself a part of the exact same harvest event. There is an event that is coming. It is called the resurrection. Listen, it is here. Not just in our hearts. <laughs> in Christ Jesus' own body. It is here. It is now. The future has dawned. The light of the coming age is shining. Someone, namely Christ Jesus himself, has already been raised up in his human nature, inner and outer man, to dwell forever in heaven. That's not just a promise. It's already for us a past concrete reality. He is even now in heaven in that condition. What hope do you have that the resurrection is coming? It's here. It's here. Where's the evidence of it? There's only one evidence of it so far. Christ Jesus himself. The harvest to come is not a different harvest, and it's not a different eschatological event. It's an extension and a bringing in of the same one that has already begun. Secondly, a new and a better humanity begins. Verse 21. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Paul elaborates on the first fruits imagery by contrasting the two great representative men. Some theologians have said that when God looks at the world, he really chiefly sees two men. I know there are billions of us, but really two. And it's not Isaiah and Antonio. Um, he sees you. He knows you. But chiefly, he sees two men. He sees Adam. And he sees Christ. And interestingly, there's a connection here. The Apostle Paul calls Christ the last Adam. Uh, if we've translated that literally, 
He says he's the eschatos Adam. The eschatological Adam is a name that Paul gives to Christ Jesus. He also calls him the deuteros anthropos, the second man. You know, you're thinking, the second man? How many people have lived between Adam and Christ, and yet he has the audacity to call Christ the second man? Because Christ is a man who functions in a role like Adam's in a way that no one else ever has. That is to say, as what what theologians call a, a federal representative, there's a temporal priority in Adam's disobedience and and death. He's the first one that enters into that uh, sentence with Eve. Um, there's also a sort of character and quality similarity at, as Adam is after the fall. That is to say, driven driven from the presence of God and as it were for a time without God in the world. So we are all born into a like spiritual condition. Also, there's a sort of promise and a pledge. There's a harbinger of things to come. Adam and Eve expelled eastward from the garden, driven out from the presence of God as an indicator of how it's going to be with man at birth from then on without God in the world dead in our trespasses and sins. By the same token, Christ Jesus is a temporal first who is also part of the coming harvest who indicates to us a better outcome. This is key. Adam and Christ stand at the head of two distinct orders, that is to say, two spiritual families with two spiritual destinies and with two, as it were, spiritual judgments passed upon them. Or sentences. For by a man came death. But then listen to what he says. By a man came also life. By a man. Now, not a mere man. God incarnate, to be sure. But a man. As much man, as much human as you and I are. Christ Jesus is not just a divine person who's kind of, as I say, cruising around in a human body. There's a heresy called Apollinarianism, which teaches that, that there wasn't really a human soul in Jesus. There was just kind of a humanoid figure. And then the divine person of Jesus was just kind of pulling the strings on the humanoid figure. But there is no real human soul or human mind in Christ Jesus. Christ had a human mind. Christ had a human soul. Nothing essential to being human was in any respect lacking in Christ Jesus. And though for all that he was not a human person but a divine person, he was a true human being, inner man, outer man, of like nature with us. By a man came death. By a man came the resurrection of the dead. Christ's resurrection is the resurrection of a human. Inner man, that is to say, his soul, which bore our sins and which was under agony and which was God forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bearing the agony of sin, not his own, but of ours. His soul understood, as it were, the experience of hell and of God forsakenness. His soul is raised, his, his human soul is raised up in the inner man, to newness of life at his resurrection, but also his outer man, is also his outer man. By a man came death, but by and so as uh, and so by a man also came resurrection from the dead. This is the important point. The resurrection is not an order less human than the resurre- than the order of Adam. If men die, inner man and outer man, body and soul, because of Adam, then men are saved, body and soul, in and through Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature. Actually, in the Greek, it's a little bit more emphatic. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, behold, new creation. 
Behold, new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. What happens in Christ Jesus is not a replacement for humanity. It is rather a transformation of humanity to a new and better condition. A new and better way of being human begins. Jesus is not here to help you graduate from being human. He is here to elevate you into a better way of being human. Still body, still soul, still you, this human, man, woman, boy, or girl, but retrofitted and outfitted for a life altogether supernatural with God in heaven. New things have begun in Christ Jesus. For us, they begin in phases. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the inner man is being renewed day by day, but you know all too well perhaps that the outer man is wasting away day by day. And as the outer man, as it were, breaks down, the inner man is growing up in newness of life and is almost an enigma. You almost feel younger, more youthful, and stronger if you are old in the faith, in the inner man, even while the body feels, well, not that way at all. And yet, here's his point. It's not because Christ just came to save souls and bodies don't matter. It's that the application of Christ's death and resurrection has begun now in your inner man, but it will be brought about in your outer man. Can I put it this way? Your body will, in the day of resurrection, catch up with the spiritual quality of your saved soul. Your body will be redeemed, not simply your soul. Third and finally, verse 22, consider that a bright future, a bright future is secured for us. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. We should say that the all is not the same all. In Adam, every human is represented except one, Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, who is represented? All those whom the Father has given him. Certainly there are more in Adam than there are in Christ. But here's the strange thing about it. Those who are in Christ were once in Adam. You're... You're not, st- you're not stuck with this federal head. Adam acted on your behalf. Adam was given a command and he acted as your representative and in your place. We're told that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. That's Romans 5.12. When did we all sin? First, we all sinned federally in that man who was bearing, as it were, our names when he committed that deed but you're not stuck with him. You're not stuck with him. That representation and all the consequences of it need not necessarily come to pass in the final analysis. They've come to pass in your birth. You were born dead in your trespasses and sins. That original sin is certainly yours, added quickly by our own actual actual sins in addition to it, undoubtedly. But there is God has provided another federal head. God has, can I put it this way? God has provided another man. That's the key here. Another human. A, a second Adam. A, a, an eschatological Adam. And can we say this? Because this is what we must say. A better Adam. A bad, in the first Adam, we all fell. In the second Adam, if you hold to him by faith, you will be made alive from the dead. The consequences of Adam's curse will be rolled off of you. Now in your inner man... To come in your outer man. But at the final day when he appears, we will appear with him in the likeness of his glory. We will appear with him in the likeness of his glory. Adam is a federal head. But he's not the last one. Certainly not the only one. Romans 5.14 says that Adam was a type of him who was to come. 
a, a foreshadowing. God has planned and prepared for another Adam. This Adam also, like the first Adam, came and was under law. We're told in Galatians 4 that he was born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law. He came to fulfill all righteousness. That's what Jesus says to John the Baptist when he goes down to the waters of, right, of, of baptism. Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's the one who came to do the will of his Father and as a man submit his will perfectly to the Father and fulfill all righteousness to be the lawkeeper that Adam and those of us who were in Adam couldn't possibly be. He came to reverse the record, to establish a record of righteousness that Adam himself failed to establish and that we in concurrence with Adam have exhibited through our so many sins. Christ has come to fulfill that righteousness, to achieve life by fulfilling the law, to achieve life by conquering the grave, to achieve life by ascending to the Father's right hand in glory and interceding. Yes, he's another Adam, but he's an unspeakably and infinitely better one. Christ came, he says, that we might have life and that more abundant. Not just your best life now. I don't know about your best life now. If you're in Christ Jesus, even if your life isn't the best, it is the best. Outwardly, things may not be so great, but it is well with your soul. Listen, though. And it will one day be just as well with your body, with your body. This is the hope that your salvation is not going to leave an essential constituent of your humanity left behind in the grave. Christ came to save us completely, completely. Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from whom also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. It is true that if you die outside of Christ Jesus, that your body too will be raised. But it's interesting, in Scripture, it's not described as resurrection unto life, but, the, but resurrection unto judgment. In fact, Revelation calls that state of being Second death, second death, a estrangement and an exile from the glory and the benefit of God's presence into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those two will go in the body, but scripture is remiss to call that life. At the sentient, at the level of sentient conscious experience, we might call it life clinically. But spiritually speaking, it does not warrant the name life. Eternal life is knowing God and his own son whom he sent. This is my prayer for us in this place, that we would be those who are in Christ Jesus, raised up to newness of life and who are looking for the resurrection of our bodies, the completion of our salvation, and who even as we attend the funeral of believers who die, and even as we mourn, as we well ought to mourn, that we do not weep as those without hope. But we weep only for a brief and temporary loss, but we weep with an even deeper hope and joy at the resurrection that is to come. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you. We thank you for not letting your Holy One undergo decay, but raising him up on the third day and even bringing him to your right hand where he even now makes intercession for us in the body. 
God, we bless you. We thank you for our resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that each of us in this place will be trusting in his death and his resurrection to save us from our sins and to give us a hope for eternal life and holy and happy dwelling with you for all of eternity. Lord, work in us by your spirit to give us a firm conviction of these things that we might be built up and encouraged and made joyful in our faith. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.